Hello, and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm Rachel Geringer. This episode marks the fourth and final in our month-long series celebrating LGBTQ history. In this show, we bring you Gay in the Eyes of God, an hour-long exploration into how Jewish, Christian, and Muslim LGBTQ people navigate the religious teachings that say homosexuality is wrong. This piece was produced by Interfaith Voices in 2013, so the intro is outdated. But the discussion of these three major global religions, their teachings on homosexuality, and the ways in which LGBTQ people navigate religion and queerness are as relevant today as they were five years ago. The United States is one of the most religious nations in the world. In repeated polls, a majority of Americans say their faith is very important to them. They attend religious services and say they pray often. Gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people are no exception. I'm a 29-year-old Hasidish lesbian living in the ultra-Orthodox neighborhood of Brooklyn. I'm a cradle Catholic, a good Irish Catholic family. It wasn't until after I transitioned that I was aware that there was a spiritual longing in me. People want to say, oh, what's wrote in the Bible is etched in stone. Not necessarily. Coming up, a special presentation from Interfaith Voices, Gay in the Eyes of God. Welcome to Gay in the Eyes of God, a special from Interfaith Voices. I'm Maureen Fiedler. It's been a time of spectacular change for gay and lesbian people in America. In the last few years, the military has begun accepting openly gay men and women into the armed forces. A growing number of states allow same-sex marriage. And all over the country, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people of faith are finding themselves welcome in places of worship, sometimes as ordained clergy themselves. But despite these enormous changes, the country is still divided. A 2012 Pew poll found that 48% of Americans support same-sex marriage and 43% don't. People of faith can be especially conflicted on this. But why? Much of their concern grows from a few passages in the Bible and how they are interpreted. In the Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, this concern begins with the book of Leviticus in the Hebrew scriptures. Among the most frequently cited verses are Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, and Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, 
both of them have committed an abomination, they shall be put to death. Many Orthodox Jews and conservative Christians read these passages the way many scholars have read them for thousands of years. But many contemporary scholars interpret these passages from a different perspective. Here is that same Leviticus passage in Hebrew. Did you hear that word at the end, toevah? That's the word that is usually translated into English as abomination. But J. Michelson says that understanding is misleading. He's the author of God versus Gay, The Religious Case for Equality. The King James translation actually translates many Hebrew words with that word abomination, uh, including the prohibition on shellfish, which is why there's, you know, the crime of uh, same-sex intimacy as in Leviticus is exactly the same as the crime of, of having a shrimp cocktail at the Red Lobster. Michelson says a better translation is simply taboo, and he says we must consider the context. Much of the book of Leviticus forbids people from practicing idolatry. When people worshipped idols, and here's where things sound strange to modern ears, men sometimes had sex with men as part of the ritual. There are texts in Deuteronomy which explain that the Canaanites would have sex as part of their ritual, and that would include sex between men. So the abomination was not the sex, but the worship of the false god? Right. I mean, the word abomination, again, is sort of a mistranslation. The taboo is always idolatry. Of course, it's more than biblical verses themselves that trouble many LGBT people of faith. Sometimes they struggle with their clergy or the people in the pews next to them and sometimes with their own consciences. In the next hour, we will hear some of their stories. We begin with a look at the Catholic Church. That church teaches officially that homosexual acts are intrinsically disordered and contrary to natural law. As a girl growing up in a Catholic family, Celestine Ranny must have heard that prohibition. But years later, as a married woman and mother, she was confronted with a situation for which her church had not prepared her. Here is the story of how she became what she calls an accidental lesbian. On Sunday mornings in the small town of Greenbelt, Maryland, sacred music drifts through the corridors of City Hall. The city council chamber is transformed with a makeshift altar. A visiting priest says mass and gives Holy Communion to the congregation of some 30 mostly middle-aged folks. It's a more egalitarian atmosphere than you'd find in a typical parish church. After Communion, people talk about what's on their minds. A tall woman with dark hair plays guitar and leads the group in song. Her partner sits in the front row. This couple has a story to tell about gender and sexuality and the lasting bonds of marriage. I'm Hillary Howes. I'm Celestine Ranny Howes. They were young when they married, in their early 20s. 
We've been married for uh, 34 years now, and for 17 of those years, I was male, and I transitioned to uh, living in a female role, and now we've been married for 17 years as a same-sex couple. Celestine says that from the beginning, their relationship was not what you would call ordinary. Her husband sometimes, once in a while, would dress in women's clothing. But it seemed harmless, just a need, a means of expression, until it began to create emotional walls between them. There was some anger at first. There's sorrow. You're losing the image of what your marriage was like, what the person you married was like, and that's changing. Hillary sought therapy first. Eventually, so did Celestine and their daughter. And finally, it was decided that Hillary would transition. The family would not ever be the same. Because I really, really believed my marriage vows when I took them, I really believed this was a person I was going to spend my whole life with, and I, I had to come to the conclusion that I had married a human being and not the spare parts of that human being, not the anatomy. You've been a lifelong Catholic, I believe. Yeah, I'm a cradle Catholic, a good Irish Catholic family. And how did your faith enter into this whole transition with Hillary? I had an intellectual Catholic background, and that led me to, to understand that if I loved this person, which I did, then I had to go to the essence of that and believe in that. And I had stood before God and said, this is it. This is the person I'm with. It was the fact that my strong belief in the Catholic conscience of love, of being loving, and that that is the most essential thing. For Hillary, the experience was different. I didn't have any religious upbringing, and so I married into the Catholic faith when I married Celestine, and it never made much sense to me when I was a man, or at least uh, pretending to be a man. Um, and so it wasn't until after I transitioned and I had so much greater access to my emotions that I was aware that there was a spiritual longing in me. Every day, Hillary and Celestine deal with the world's perceptions of who they are. Their daughter perhaps summed it up best when she told them that they weren't lesbian or gay or heterosexual, you're Celestinian, she said, and Hilarian. For me, the biggest struggle was the idea that in transitioning to be an authentic woman, I'd have to deny being a husband and being a father because of the way all of that's identified in our culture. But ultimately, realizing that we could redefine what it meant to be a husband and a father was what liberated me to live authentically. And something I quote often is a line from a Wendy Wasserstein play, love is love, gender is just spare parts. And that always really clings to me that that is true. It's love is love, and we love who we love. Celestine and Hillary are redefining traditional Catholic teachings on gender and love. But other Catholics embrace these official teachings. Eve Tushnet lives in Washington, D.C. 
where she's made a name for herself as a blogger and writer for Catholic and conservative magazines. She converted to Catholicism in college, where she became intrigued by the writings of some of the church's oldest philosophers and theologians. Eve is a lesbian, and she didn't take her conversion lightly. In fact, she decided that there is only one way to be a Catholic and a lesbian at the same time, to live a celibate life. At a visit to her home, Eve told us about her spiritual journey. So this is like my little nook uh, with crucifix, various holy cards of varying degrees of cheesiness, the cheesy holy card being a fine Catholic tradition. St. Edith Stein, Jewish philosopher, became a Carmelite nun, was killed in Auschwitz. I think this is St. Therese. She looks very cheesy here. She doesn't in real life. This is my goddaughter. This is my feminine little seashell pink plastic rosary. I pray the rosary every day, and I pray when I get up and go to bed. I mean, I think I did a lot of the standard childhood attempts to figure out what people meant when they said God. I did the whole thing of standing in the backyard and being like, if you're really out there, give me a sign, and nothing happened. In college, I was in a debating society that had a lot of Catholics in it. Uh, I met Christians, in this case mostly Catholics, for the first time who were interested in making me also be Christian. I did start praying after a while. Uh, because I was beginning to be very unnerved by how much my, the things my Catholic friends said were, was resonating with me. One thing that I feel like has remained true over the years is that my sexual identity is not something that can be kind of cordoned off and kept too well. Maybe once every few years you'll, you know, you'll have a crush and that'll be the moment in which you're gay and all the rest of the time you're just sort of there. Um, but in fact, you know, I think that my attraction to women does infuse a lot of what I do. I tend to be much more drawn to work that involves serving women in some capacity. thing that I'm trying to do I think the most strenuously is just open up the options and say look there are actually a lot of ways out there to have love in your life that is both obviously the love of God but also the love of actual you know like normal human beings that walk around and that you can see and hug. There are going to be times when it's just a sacrifice. There are things that you have to pour out at the feet of Christ and just say, I'm giving this to you. I think there will be times when sex is one of those things. Given the chastity is a virtue, that we're all called to practice, that means either don't have sex or have sex within marriage uh, with someone of the opposite sex. There will be other times when there's a poignant, intense desire for the other, which can be channeled in, in another direction, which can become friendship, 
which can become service, and which is equally deep when it takes that form. There are plenty of biblical models of same-sex love. The classic one that is constantly brought up and comes up in spiritual friendship is the love between David and Jonathan. There's also the love between Jesus and all of his disciples, but perhaps especially the beloved disciple John. Jesus says it, right? He says, there is no greater love than this, that a man should lay down his life for his friends. Which is sort of striking in contemporary America, where you would expect it to be like his wife or his child. Jesus's friendship lasts unto death. I don't think that I chose any part of this. That doesn't make it bad. That doesn't mean that I wouldn't have chosen it. I'm actually pretty happy, you know, as both being gay and being Catholic, but I don't think I chose either of them. I think with both of them, it was a recognition of a truth that had already happened. Eve Tushnet is a writer living in Washington, D.C. In a moment, we'll continue with Gay in the Eyes of God. I look like any of the other moms in my neighborhood. I wear a wig, I wear modest clothes, my elbows are covered, I wear skirts. Coming up, the little-known world of gay Orthodox Jews and a rabbi who speaks with the authority of 4,000 years. Stay tuned. You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT. This episode features a rebroadcast of Interfaith Voices' 2013 program, Gay in the Eyes of God, which explores how Jewish, Christian, and Muslim LGBTQ people navigate the religious teachings which say homosexuality is wrong. Welcome back to Gay in the Eyes of God, a special one-hour program from Interfaith Voices. I'm Maureen Fiedler. We've been hearing stories of people who are trying to reconcile their faith with their sexuality. They are gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender. And they say sometimes it feels like their religion doesn't want them. Take, for instance, Orthodox Judaism a relatively small but thriving tradition in the United States. Orthodoxy is centered around community and family, and it emphasizes strict observance of Jewish law, which traditionally teaches that homosexual behavior is forbidden. Being observant is called being from, Yiddish for devout. It would seem, then, that LGBT people growing up in the Orthodox tradition would simply depart. After all, they can generally find a warmer welcome in other branches of Judaism, and many do, but not all. Producer John Kalish spent some time talking to people for whom it is impossible to separate being gay from being from. My name is Steve Greenberg. I'm an Orthodox rabbi. I'm 55 years old, and I live with my partner and my 
one-and-a-half-year-old daughter in Cincinnati, Ohio. My name is Hani Getter. I'm 35 years old, and I live in Wesley Hills, New York. I am Maishi Rabinowitz. I am 32 years old. I am from Kew Garden Hills, Queens, which is a completely orthodox neighborhood. I'm a 29-year-old Hasidish lesbian living in the ultra-orthodox neighborhood of Brooklyn. I'm a single mother, and I look like any of the other moms in my neighborhood. I wear a wig, I wear modest clothes, my elbows are covered, I wear skirts. You wouldn't know that I'm any different from any of the neighbors that you'd meet. I choose not to use my name for the interview today. I'm trying to protect my identity and my children. I think I knew that I was gay when I was a kid. I was, I think, a lot of the time just frightened that something about me was dangerous and I had to keep it secret, and I had no idea what that was. I assumed I was attracted to girls. Then I get to Israel and I'm 20 and I'm studying in yeshiva, and I'm really physically drawn toward one of the guys in the yeshiva, and then I know something's up. I don't know quite what to do with it, I don't want to tell anybody in the yeshiva, but I go to a counselor rabbi, and I say to him, Master, I'm attracted to both men and women. What should I do? Speaking in Hebrew, he, he responded to me, um, My dear one, my friend, you have twice the power of love. Use it carefully. I was totally taken aback. I said, Master, is there anything else you can tell me? He says, No, there's, there's nothing else to say. And they ushered me out of the room. It took me another 15 years to say the words, I am gay. I was 20 years old when I had my second child, my, my daughter Esther, and after her I needed to rest. My ex got us a television, which was a very new thing for me, something I'd never watched before. And somehow the word lesbian came up in, in one of the shows, and I didn't know what it was. I, people were laughing, so I thought, hey, I need to look that up. I looked it up and realized that that was who I was. I was always absolutely sure that I was gay. My confusion growing up was more about how I'm going to deal with it, or rather, will I be cured? And if I pray enough, or if I take learning more seriously, I'll wake up one day and be straight. I've been out for about 10 years now, and I lived the definition of a double life. I was in yeshiva during the day, and then at times when I could sneak away, I would go out to dance clubs. I started going to bars and just, you know, exploring this new life. When it became clear to me that it was just a matter of time that I was going to have to come out, I was dropping hints, making it known to people that I own a pair of jeans, making it known to people that maybe I don't want to wear a black hat anymore, which was a huge shock. And then... I definitely, definitely subconsciously left a few things out in my bedroom. If I had bought a chain or a necklace or something like that, or a lot of hair gel or a lot of makeup or whatever it was, I would be careless about it. I probably knew my whole life that I was attracted to women. That's something that I knew and acted upon in high school. 
I just knew I liked girls and um, I liked being close to them. My friendships were probably more intense and more intimate than a lot of other girls. After I got married and I was in an unhappy marriage, I started seeing a therapist, an ultra-Orthodox religious guy in Brooklyn. I told him, I just don't love my husband. I don't feel attracted to him. And he said, you're a young kid, you're 19 years old. How do you know what love and attraction is? And I said, I've been there before. I've loved several people before and I've been attracted to them. He said, really, when and who? You're a Hasidic girl, you look like a good girl. You weren't doing anything bad. I said, well, in high school, there were these girls and I was really close with them. And I could think of two in particular and there's one that I'm still in love with right now. And he said, did you ever think that maybe you're a lesbian? And I said, what's that? And he explained it to me and I said, hmm, maybe I'm a lesbian. Once I came out, I think there was a while I was frightened that I would be formally deprived of my smicha, my ordination, but that never happened. I was censured once by one of the rabbis of Yeshiva University. When I first came out, he said, there's no such thing as an Orthodox gay rabbi. To be Orthodox and gay is like being a rabbi who eats cheeseburgers on Yom Kippur. But surprisingly, you know, when I first came out, some colleagues said, congratulations, don't quote me. And others said, I'm disappointed, but I understand, and it must be hard for you. And a few said, give me a few years, but I know that what you're starting is going to produce change. And right now it's politically too threatening, but I'm going to be beside you someday. I live in an Orthodox community. When I first moved into the neighborhood, there was one woman who had a vendetta against me and was going to have me thrown out of the neighborhood because of my sexual deviant behavior. But I went to the rabbi, and I said to him, I'm gay, and I know that you know that I'm gay, so let's not talk about that. I also have three children, and I'm raising them in observant home in the Orthodox community. And if I need to move, then there will be repercussions with my children and the way that they will grow up. Can you take that responsibility on your shoulders? And I don't know what the rabbi did or what he said, but he stood up. And after that, the vendetta stopped and the neighborhood kind of took us in. Most people who discover themselves to be gay or lesbian, they leave orthodoxy. Because why would they stay? in an environment that is going to be so misunderstanding of them. Many parents want to find a way to hold on to their kids and their kids' connection to God and to tradition and to Torah and to observance, but don't know how to do it because what institutions will support them in that? What rabbis will support them in that? Orthodox community is moved from within. Once you leave it, you have no voice in it. When it's the outside world, liberal Jews or even the liberal secular environment that presses against orthodoxy, they fight back. We are hoping as we grow this community and provide people support, they stay inside the community and they help move it to compassion from within. The way that I reconcile my being gay as well as observant would be because I believe that God loves and God is love and that there really isn't a way to be in the world other than that. 
And if this is the way that I love, then there can't be anything wrong with it. I really believe the rabbis will catch up with it. It's hard for me to say I don't consider myself an Orthodox Jew. While I'm not practicing at all, I still think it's in my heart. It was my education, it was my life, it was all that I knew. And I think it's just easier for me to deal with the pain and with everything that I've gone through by not saying that I left. There's this one rabbi I was talking to. His initial reaction to me was, this is a sin, you need to stop what you're doing. I'm not okay with it. He didn't know what it meant to be a lesbian. His main argument against it was, there's a Torah lifestyle. There's a way of leading your life that, and the Torah constantly talks about a man with a woman, and that is, you know, the right way to live. And I tried to argue that with him. You know, I said, you know, so for a person like me, what's the Torah lifestyle? Am I supposed to be with a man and be miserable? You know, let him suffer and me suffer, because part of the Torah lifestyle is being happy, serving God with joy, and a woman being with another woman who inspires her and who helps her grow and encourages her. That's Torah to me. That's what God wants from me. I know it. Most Orthodox rabbis have other ideas. Among them is Rabbi Meir Fund, who leads the Orthodox congregation Sheve Sachim in Brooklyn, New York. He is unambiguous about the Talmud's prohibition against homosexuality. It's a sin. It's a sin. It's actually, it's a serious sin. Jewish law is shaped by the written Torah as well as what we call the oral tradition of the Talmud. And in both, there's very clear-cut, unambiguous understanding. So let's be very clear. I am aware of the anguish of people who identify as gay, lesbian, transgender, and my heart overflows with compassion. We are not in the condemning business, and we tell everyone to do absolutely the best they can. That's all God ever asks. And that's really what it means. I'm sure that in synagogues throughout America, if not the world, there are people who come to those synagogues who may be transgressing all kinds of transgressions. And the doors are open for every Jew to walk in. And so if the best someone can do by that definition is to continue to live in a loving relationship as a gay man or a lesbian, it's still sinful, but that's the best they can do and that's okay? Am I judging people? I'm not judging. I lay out what the Torah says and I leave it at that. Whether we're talking about observing the Sabbath, whether we're talking about business practice, whether we're talking about illicit relations, we are not running a Taliban-type system of justice. We lay out the Torah's vision, the Torah's expectation, and we'll leave it up to people to live up to that. Can the orthodox stance on homosexuality change or evolve in any way? Or has it? Does halakha or Jewish law evolve? Well, I will try and give you as accurate and clear an answer to that question as I could. So I'm going to be doing on the one hand and then on the other hand. And I hope it's not going to be confusing. On the one hand, the only existence which does not evolve is existence which is no longer living. 
anything which is living is going to change. Change is part of life. So from that standpoint, the answer is it will, and it does change. However, the process of change is driven not by merely responding to the pressure of external values which seemingly contradict what the Torah is saying. It's really driven by a kind of intellectually honest search for the truth, come what may. And from that standpoint, I'm sure you could demonstrate over time that those who toil and study the Talmud, the codes of Jewish law over decades, develop insights and understandings that are rigorous, that are integral, and indeed the halacha in that manner will grow. Aside from scripture, is it possible to be a good Jew and be gay, lesbian, or transgender? For example, attend services, be observant, participate in the life of the community. I go back to what I said at the outset. I hope I'm not being redundant. It's not my job to judge people. We judge the application of Torah to the lives of people, and everyone who walks into synagogue is falling short. This one gossips. This one isn't honest in business. This one, I hate to say it, maybe he's cheating on his wife. So every Jew has to be the best Jew he could be. How would you counsel a parent who has come to you and said, my child has just come out to me as gay. What do I do? Love him more or love her more. That's what I would say. And suppose someone came to you and said, I have just discovered I am gay or lesbian or I'm going to go through with a transgender surgery. What would you say to that person if they said, you know, I, I really, I'm in love with somebody of the same gender. It depends if they're coming to ask me an opinion because they don't know what to do or they're merely coming to inform me what they've decided already. If they've decided already, so whatever I'm going to say is moot, I would tell them that whatever they do, they should feel always welcome in my heart, in my community, in my home. If they're coming to be guided, then it would be a whole other story. How have the changes that are taking place, both in attitudes and in the law, affected the Orthodox tradition? Well, basically, I am 4,000 years old, meaning to say that we go back in a link, a chain of tradition that's unbroken, 4,000 years back in time and place, to Mount Sinai, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and our understanding of our tradition is shaped by that unbroken chain. We Jews for thousands of years have been in the position of having some aspect of our tradition be in conflict with the consensus of prevailing opinion. Sometimes we pay dearly for being different. Sometimes we just have to insulate ourselves against the influence from the outside. But we are long-term survivors of being out of sync, if need be. It's not always easy to be lonely, but do we have a choice but to work with the truth that was given to us to hold on to, to protect, to nurture? I think that it would be very beautiful if you, me, all of us could wake up to a world where 
the external, the outside world, was totally in harmony with all the things we believed on the inside. And hopefully one day that will come to be. But until then, we all have to learn to be rugged individualists, but yet to feel the pain of another person, to hear the thoughts, even if they're different than ourselves. And hopefully we're doing what God wants. Rabbi Mayer Fund leads the Sheve Sakim Congregation in Brooklyn, New York. You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT. This episode features a rebroadcast of Interfaith Voices' 2013 program, Gay in the Eyes of God, which explores how Jewish, Christian, and Muslim LGBTQ people navigate the religious teachings which say homosexuality is wrong. The Jewish scriptures form the basis of Christianity's Old Testament. They are also incorporated into the Quran, the holy book of Islam. Together, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam make up what we call the Abrahamic faiths. One scriptural story found in all three religions is often cited as God's condemnation of homosexuality. It is the story of Abraham's nephew, called Lut in the Quran. Lut is a prophet sent by Allah to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to warn the people there that they must turn from their violent and lustful ways. While in Sodom, Lut is visited by two angels with the appearance of handsome young men. During the night, the men of Sodom come and demand that the men be turned over to them. Lut tries to stop them. He said to his people, Do ye commit lewdness such as no people in creation ever committed before you? For ye practice your lusts on men in preference to women. Ye are indeed a people transgressing beyond bonds. There's S. Quran 780 through verse 81. Uh, what? Of all creatures do you come unto the males, and leave the wives your Lord created for you? Nay, but ye are forward folk. That's Quran 26.165. Dai Abdullah is an Islamic scholar, and he serves as the imam of the Mosque for Enlightenment and Reform in Washington, D.C. His interpretation of the story of Lut is different from most. He points out something about the men of Sodom that is often overlooked in more traditional interpretations. The Quran gives us an information that they were wives that they turned from. Therefore, they were heterosexual men who used homosexual sexual acts as a form of torture and punishment. 
and control over people. And this is why I interpret it as a issue of rape, control and power, and not one of sexual acts. On Friday evenings, Imam Dayi welcomes Muslims from all over the Washington area. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Welcome to Light of Reform Mosque. Small rugs are unrolled on the floor for the Juma, or prayer service. If you're familiar with them or, or have been to a more traditional mosque, we do things a little bit differently. So don't get upset. It's all kosher. <laughs> Before the service begins, in a small room off the main hall, Imam Dai explains that his own personal journey to Islam began in a Southern Baptist household in Detroit. His parents, he says, gave him permission to explore, so he began searching, studying metaphysics and going to services of other faiths. Dai says he found the greatest sense of inner peace and calm in the rituals and process of Islam. Washing before prayers, for example, helped him prepare his mind for his faith. It meant that you had to let go of everything else you were working on in your brain, and then from there, feeling spiritually washed, so to speak, then to go into the prayer area, and then from there to listen to the khutbah, the sermon that was presented, to understand what they had to say, preparing for the actual group prayer, and at the end of the prayer, feeling a great sense of elation that the actual process, bowing forward, releasing all the issues that I had, and saying, God, I'm here to turn my issues over to you, and with that process, if there is an answer, provide me the answer. Dai says God's answer would come in the form of inspiration. But even if there were no answer, there would be inner peace and calm and the patience to await one. Tonight there are about 25 people, including a Christian minister, a friend of the imams. Men and women sit together. Some of the women wear the hijab, some don't. There are prayers in English and Arabic and a reading from the poet Rumi. For his sermon, Imam Dai talks about the story of Yusuf, or Joseph, whose brothers sold him into slavery. What is taught in the story is patience and perseverance, knowing that Allah's will is the best course and to hold on to the rope of Allah. Dai Abdullah is possibly the only openly gay imam in America. He's heard of one other in South Africa. And he repeats something that a lot of Muslims say, there is no compulsion in religion. Not required to change your belief. And you're not also required to try to change your sexual orientation. That's correct. God doesn't make mistakes in his creation. And therefore, when people are born the way in which they are, then there's no mistake in that. It's how the person takes their skills and talents and utilizes them in interacting with other human beings. You are listening to Gay in the Eyes of God, a special program from Interfaith Voices. I'm Maureen Fiedler. 
Coming up, a father and daughter struggle over sexuality and faith. I wonder what if your daughter said, well, God made me this way. I guess God did make it that way. But she was born and God made us all. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. My dad is just, uh, he come up in a time and era where not only does he not agree with homosexuality, he doesn't agree with blacks and whites dating. Stay tuned. You are listening to Gay in the Eyes of God, a special program from Interfaith Voices. In the last few years, same-sex marriage has emerged as a central religious and civil rights issue. Across America, different Christian denominations have fought over whether to perform weddings for same-sex couples. In some cases, it has led to splits and breakaway churches. Opposing sides continue to fight in the public sphere, from the voting booth to the courts, including the Supreme Court. And state by state, voters are now answering the question, who can marry legally? Is marriage only between a man and a woman? Producer John Bewin went to a small town in North Carolina after a measure banning same-sex marriage had been approved by voters. He found that sometimes change doesn't happen in the church or the courtroom or in Congress. Sometimes it takes place in the family. Anita Sherrill and her partner, Sansare Davis, share a house on the east side of Hickory, North Carolina. This is kind of our little domain. We hang out down here. Anita is a youthful 47. This day she's wearing sweats and her hair is in short twists. Anita runs a knitting machine at a local t-shirt factory. She didn't hesitate to agree to an interview. Stuff like this for me is just, you know, it's easy for me to do. I'm ready to speak out on things that, you know, if I, I feel like I have a point, I'm going to share. Anita hasn't always been outspoken or comfortable with her sexuality, but she says she has always known she was gay. I didn't know what the terminology was for it when I was a kid. I just knew that at coming up, it was just some things that I just didn't like as a girl. And I couldn't figure out why, you know, why, why don't I? I didn't, I didn't like a baby doll. My mother seen it at a young age. I think she tried in her own way to, she tried to make me a little girl. I actually got spankings for not wearing the clothes that my mom laid out for me. Because if it was a dress, I wasn't wearing it. That was just me, I was tomboyish. I, you know, I didn't like things that little girls liked. Her mother died when Anita was 17. She and her father have always gotten along well, and they still do, but that doesn't mean he accepts her sexual orientation. My dad is just, uh, he come up in a time and era where not only does he not agree with uh, homosexuality, he doesn't agree with blacks and whites dating. That just comes from a, a mindset that he refuses to, to educate himself. Basically, he refuses change. He don't like change. 
he wants to stay in the in the old days. Anita's father, Winslow Sherrill, agrees to meet with me over breakfast at a Biscuitville restaurant in Hickory. He's 74, he retired after working in various manufacturing plants. Of his 13 grown children, two are openly lesbian, Anita and one of her older sisters. They were grown when I found out, teenagers. And how long it had been going on, I got the least idea. And that's something I don't talk to them about. Either. I could say I don't like it, but I don't say nothing to them about it. Well, for some reason, it's there. I don't know what we can do to get it out, but it, it's sort of know what to say about it. I wonder, what if your daughter said, well, God made me this way? That's why I asked, well, where did it come from? I guess God did make it that way. Uh, you know, that's, that's a good part. But she was born, and God made us all. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> Anita Sherrill says in the churches she grew up in in Hickory, almost nothing was said about homosexuality. Its sinfulness was a given. As a young adult, she got into a relationship with a woman who had a drug problem. Anita suffered heartache and lost most of her money. And the first thing I thought is, ah, oh, the reason all of this is happening it's because I'm gay. God, that's not intended for, you know, me to live that way, and that's why this happened. And I started going to church, and I try to change me. I've had a pastor to come to one of the church I was attending and probably pour this much oil over my head, bottled water, full of oil. I mean, oil running down my face and everybody just praying over me, oh, trying to cast this demon out of me. I was in church for over 10 years wearing dresses and I mean this has been it's not been that long ago maybe in the year 2000 maybe I've been with my mate now for five years and this is the first relationship I had gotten in after I come to the conclusion that I can't do this anymore you know I can't I can't put on this facade anymore I can't I cannot do this anymore Anita says those years of trying to go straight did make her a devout Christian and she's thankful for that She's read a lot and studied the Bible, and she's convinced God does not condemn gays. People want to say, oh, what's wrote in the Bible is etched in stone. Not necessarily. You really have to research that thing. And some of that stuff, like, like I told my dad, Master Daddy, do you think it's wrong for women to be in the pulpit? Oh, no. I said, well, the Bible says that. Of course, many Christians believe the Bible does condemn homosexuality, and that it declares without question that only heterosexual marriage is real marriage. That's how Anita's father, Winslow Sherrill, feels. And he supported the amendment banning same-sex marriage in the North Carolina Constitution. I don't care how you, how you go around gay marriage. Uh, to me, it just ain't right. That doesn't stop Sherrill from spending time with his daughters and their partners. I love them just as much as I ever loved them. They seem to be happy. I spoke with other members of Cheryl's church who expressed a similar mixed view. Love and accept the gay people in your life, but... They're taking baby steps with it. Anita Cheryl. You know, they like, well, okay, we can't dislike them. We ain't got to like what they're doing, but we got to love them because we Christians. But, oh, no, they ain't getting married in my church. Oh, no, uh, we ain't accepting. I don't want to see it, you know. 
I mean, I'm black. And that's just like saying, oh, yeah, you can come in my house, but you're not sitting down. You know, I got to let you in because that's what I'm supposed to do as a Christian. But don't you come past the door, sit down on my furniture, you know, so. North Carolinians overwhelmingly approved the constitutional amendment banning gay marriage. The debate did achieve one thing, though. It led to the first direct conversations ever between Anita and her father about her sexual orientation. He says, well, girl, don't you go getting married on me now. I said, I'm going to get married as soon as y'all ignorant people get out of my way and leave us alone. I'm going to get married. (laughs) So (laughs) that's kind of how that thing went. That story came to us from John Bewin of the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. We live in a time of incredible change. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people of faith are demanding visibility and respect in their churches, synagogues, and mosques. In return, Many religious institutions are re-examining their traditions, teachings, and practices. Religious scholars are debating new ways to understand doctrine, new ways to interpret scripture. Some congregations are embracing new perspectives on homosexuality, while others hold fast to centuries-old convictions. And all the while, there continue to be individuals who understand more deeply every day what it means to be gay in the eyes of God. I'm Maureen Fiedler. You've been listening to Gay in the Eyes of God, Produced by Deborah George, Jocelyn Frank, Laura Quarell, Ellen Rolfus, and Tolly Singer. Funding for this one-hour special came from the Arcus Foundation. We are also grateful to WAMU 88.5 FM in Washington, D.C., where most of our interviews were conducted. Gay in the Eyes of God is a production of Interfaith Voices, public radio's leading religion news magazine. Interfaith Voices is carried on public radio stations around the country. For more information, visit us at interfaithradio.org. That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk, featuring Interfaith Voices 2013 program, Gay in the Eyes of God. If you'd like to hear this or previous episodes again, please visit our website at www.wmmt.org.
or download Mountain Talk wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio, and happy pride.